Bitcoin's blockchain isn't unique because it's a blockchain. It's unique because of the properties and the game theory and the and the and the the uh, distributed nature of the nodes and all of. I mean, just so many, just so many different things that make it uh, really effective at doing its one singular kind of difficult job, which is preventing double spending and you know the the, the modest hope of becoming. Um, money that is not connected to the, to the state. <laughs>
other people go into court, uh, and going into court is sort of the litigation aspect of things. So I try to, I, the goal is to sort of take that litigation experience from election law and bring it into the Bitcoin space. And I think as we, we've talked about before, happily for Bitcoiners, there's not a great deal of legal, uh, you know, legal problems for Bitcoin because it's so well, man, or it's so well uh, envisioned and designed that it avoids a lot of the problems that, you know, these countless other cryptocurrencies run into. Uh, so it's great for Bitcoiners. Uh, which I am one, so it's good on that side. But it's you know it's tough for the legal practice because they don't go to court that often. Um, but uh, you know the goal is essentially to take that litigation experience in election law and the, you know knowing the federal courts and everything and uh, apply it to clients in the Bitcoin space who, if they ever unfortunately get into a situation where they're being sued, probably by Craig Wright, um, <laughs> that they've got lawyers uh, to back them up and that know not only the courtroom but the actual underlying protocol because. Um, when you're when you're educating, basically, what lawyers do at the end of the day is attempt to educate judges on whatever issue is before them. And I think that it's incredibly important to have lawyers who understand the underlying protocol, who understand the story of Bitcoin, and can articulate that understanding to the judge so that they can make informed decisions when they're uh, weighing the facts of the case against the current state of the law. And you know, I think that that's a great. Um, uh, you know, melding of, of, of things that I, I, I want to be able to uh, give to the judge. And that's the, whole, that's the whole point of the Bitcoin practice group is be there, have the sort of broad spectrum understanding of Bitcoin, understanding of the courtroom, understanding of litigation generally, and be able to help our clients to the extent that they need it. Definitely. That kind of gets us into like what we're mainly going to talk about today, which is like there's a big kind of debate in the Bitcoin and, and quote unquote crypto community about are certain things, you know, securities and are certain thing, things commodities, including like Bitcoin itself. Like what is like the definition of like, or what is a security and like, what is a commodity? Like what is, what is the difference at, you know, a high level? Yeah. Um, so that's a very good question. And I think honestly, the, the, what is a security question is probably um, the biggest legal question in crypto right now. It's certainly the most well-known um, and happily again for Bitcoin, it's uh, it's not an issue really because it's it's really the only one that's been decided uh, by the powers that be, so to speak, um, is not a security. Uh, but a, a security revolves around what we call the Howey test, and that that name I'm sure most people in this space are familiar with it. Um, that name comes from a, a Supreme Court case from 1946, and in that case, uh, they established what was a security and an investment contract, uh, which would be subject to the jurisdiction of the SEC. And the reason why that's even important in the first place uh, is because the, when you're subject to the jurisdiction of the SEC, you have to abide by all these regulations. You have to make all these disclosures. And that's just a vestige from when the SEC was created, kind of post-Depression era, you know, when, when the, the government decided that freewheeling investment was potentially problematic for the economy because it could result in crashes that we saw during the depression. So they created the SEC and all these regulatory standards and disclosures. Um, and most cryptocurrencies don't do, you know, I, I would say, I would say the vast majority, I don't really know any that do yet. Uh, they don't abide by these regulatory requirements because it's sort of fly by the seat of your pants. Uh, and, you know, let, let's, let's create something and see if the public wants it. Um, which is, you know, I, I love the entrepreneurial spirit, but, in the U.S., if it, you're exposed to the U.S. jurisdiction, it creates problems for you. Um, so the Howey test basically said that uh, an investment contract that is a security that's subject to the SEC's jurisdiction is something that is an investment of money. Uh, and when they say money, they mean really anything of value. It doesn't have to be money. So Bitcoin can be an investment of money. Um, there, but you have an investment of money with an expectation of profit from that investment. Um, and that investment of money is in a common enterprise, meaning you know there's a company or a group of individuals who are all working towards the same end that's identifiable. Um, and then that profit that you receive comes primarily not from your own efforts, but from the efforts of others. Um, and for, in the you know in the financial sense, the financial world, the the question is really is it a security? And if you answer yes to that, then yeah, it's a security. If you answer no to that, then it's probably a commodity. Very interesting. So I guess with the Howey test being invented, you know, way back when, has there ever been like a debate like this, or at least like this common in legal history where like, there's actually like a debate on whether this asset is a 
commodity or this asset as a security? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it certainly happens. I'm not sure about necessarily how often it happens. And again, and, and uh, so that your viewers know, uh, I'm a you know, litigator first, securities lawyer. Uh, I, I am not, I work with our securities lawyers in our firm as a consultant on the Bitcoin side of things. So I don't want to say that I have um, all the information in the, in the security space, but as a result of my consulting with our securities lawyers on the Bitcoin side and crypto side of things, I've done my own research on this for the last several years. Um, and so I, I'm sort of well aware of a lot of the securities uh, laws, uh, but I wouldn't, I would not hold myself out as a securities attorney. Um, that being said, though, the the there is there is a lot of times a little uh, give and take between you know the CFTC, which is the agency involved with uh, regulating commodities, and the SEC, which is the agency involved uh, with regulating securities. And I think. Um, I want to say 2015, 2016, they had a bit of a jurisdictional uh, dust up um, over an, in, an indice for the, an index in the, uh, basically it was supposed to be an equities index uh, of, of um, dividends. And so they wanted to basically pack, capture the S&P 500's dividends and you know, hold that out as a, a financial instrument to invest in. And the, the CFTC said it was effectively a commodity commodity. Uh, and, ex and claimed exclusive jurisdiction over it. SEC said, no, 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 this is a securities future investment, uh, uh, a financial instrument, so we have jurisdiction. And, um, you know, they, they duked it out for a while, and I think they ended up having a dual jurisdiction, if, I, if a memory serves. But, yeah, so, so it's not unprecedented what we're seeing here in the crypto space. And I know we, we often like to think it is because the technology is so new, um, you know, the, the technology that powers this. And I don't like to use that term because I think people kind of pay way too much respect to the concept of blockchain and they think it's just this uh, panacea and this unhackable database and, and you know those of us who are involved in this space know that that's really not true and that's mostly marketing um, but you know they, they've got a clever sort of complex way of packaging these these investments um, and even though that that new clever complex way is very interesting and novel it has precedent in the past and so you're seeing that play out right now and that's in large part, a lot of what the SEC is doing in these cases that they're 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 bringing against Ripple and you know other individual investors that, that they previously brought against uh, the likes of Telegram and things like that uh, is packaging that 1946 case and applying it to present day. Um, and so far, they've been they've been fairly successful when they've pursued these. Ripple's an interesting um, case to keep your eye on, because um, a lot of people will settle, including Telegram. Um, but yeah, so it's not unprecedented what we're going through, and this is sort of par for the course for litigation and for um, regulatory action. Yeah, I definitely agree that you know the whole idea of blockchain is is you know like the Bitcoin blockchain is is special and unique, but blockchain itself is definitely like a marketing and sales tool that you know people use to just sell you know a solution to a really a really a problem that doesn't exist to companies that large companies that may just want to get ahead of the curve or, or whatnot. Um, yeah, and, and, and yeah, I mean, just to give you an example, like being the Bitcoin guy at my large law firm, you know, we, I get a lot of different, a lot of different uh, questions from lawyers in the firm that say, oh, I've got a client who's thinking about doing this or that. And they mentioned crypto and, you know, they, like most people will just associate crypto and Bitcoin as one and the same. They don't, they really don't differentiate between them. Um, and like, like as you and I uh, know, they are different. Bitcoin's blockchain isn't unique because it's a blockchain. It's unique because of the properties and the game theory and the and the and the the uh, distributed nature of the nodes and all of. I mean, just so many, just so many different things that make it uh, really effective at doing its one singular kind of difficult job, which is preventing double spending and you know the the, the modest hope of becoming. Um, money that is not connected to the, to the state. <laughs> um, but, you know, I get like, I get questions about putting real estate on a blockchain and voting on a blockchain um, and just just all sorts of stuff. And I have to kind of sit down and take the wind out of their sail. I mean, I, I'm probably like the annoying lawyer in the room who's like, let's just pump the brakes on these ideas. And I hope, I'm hoping I'm somewhat useful, but I have to sort of tell them that you know, the, the blockchain is not the equivalent of an unhackable database. So if you put not only let's put aside the difficulty of, you know, taking all of the property records in the history of your state and putting them on a blockchain, uh, you know, in some database 
and hoping there's no there's no um, human error, no automation error in starting uh, you know starting that off. But if you do that, then what's the point of throwing that on a quote unquote blockchain if all the data is so intensive that only a few nodes could ever actually run it? Um, what, how is that any different from what we have now, where you have a few county registers offices and things like that 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 maintain the state of the property ledger? Um, and it's often, it's often, you know, it's either not just as good or way worse. And so that's what people need to be on the lookout for, I think. And I think um, that, that's a bit of an aside, but that's, yeah, that's sort of the stuff we see with the blockchain in the legal space. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think there's a lot of flaws when, when it comes to the idea of putting physical items on a blockchain. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so going, transitioning back like towards Bitcoin, I guess, specifically, um, we, we recently saw like the SEC go after Kim Kardashian of all people by finding her, you know, 1.2 million for promoting, I don't even know what tokens she was promoting, but some sort of crypto tokens. And then, uh, like a couple of days ago, Peter Schiff made a tweet about how the SEC should go after Sailor and others for promoting Bitcoin. So I know you've been working a lot on this, or at least have been thinking a lot about this. Why is Bitcoin specifically not a security and basically a commodity. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, and again, this goes back to that same sort of first principles principles approach that I took back in the day when you know I was looking at different cryptocurrencies and, and deciding on which one I liked. Um, you know, Bitcoin has this very unique uh, origin story that I don't really, I'm not really convinced could ever be replicated at this point. Um, but there, there are a number of factors that I've identified and others, others as well have identified as the things that separate it apart. And I think they can kind of be distilled down into, you know, what we would call a fair launch, um, which is really the antithesis of what happens now with most cryptocurrencies where you have a, either a pre-mine or a pre-allocation of your cryptocurrency um, and distribute either among privileged individuals, it's early investors at a low price. Um, and that's how you kind of get that token out there into, into the world. Bitcoins was very much the opposite of that. Um, you had essentially, with the exception of, I guess, the Genesis block, potentially, there, was, there were no preordained Bitcoins. And the Genesis block, you know, its reward was the same 50 Bitcoin as every other block thereafter. And we're now on uh, excuse me, well, you know, taking account the halving. So it was the same reward for the first 210,000 blocks. Um, so, you know, Satoshi didn't get a privileged allocation. You could argue, I guess, that he knew about it first. Um, and so he was privileged in that manner, but he still had to do the proof of work. You still had to uh, invest the time, the energy, the computing power in order to get that the same as anybody else. Now, it's great that you, if you if you got there early, but that's not what I would call unfair in that there was a privileged allocation given to certain people. Um, if you joined the network in 2009, you got, you got, um, you get, and you started mining, then you got the 50 for the, for the work that you produced and same as anybody else. So that's, that's one aspect. <clears throat> I think that was important. The other aspect is the valueless circulation that occurred from the, the from that Genesis block till 2009, 2000, like end of 2009, 2010, it's kind of, I think it's arguable that uh, there were exchanges identifying potential uh, price points for Bitcoin in late 2009. Um, but I think everybody recognizes the Bitcoin pizza transaction in 2010 as the definitive moment where there was a market price set for Bitcoin. Um, but either way, there was a period of months or you know a year and a half that Bitcoin circulated with no value. Um, and so when it when you're thinking about that from the perspective, let's kind of think about those first two things from the perspective of a securities regulator. Uh, the fair launch, you know, as we talked about earlier, there's those four prongs of the Howey test. Um, you know, one of those prongs is there's an investment of money with an expectation of profit from that investment. With a fair launch and valueless circulation, there's a, there's no there can be no argument that there was an expectation of profit from that investment. Um, and you weren't obviously buying it, you were using computing power and time and energy to cultivate it. Um, and you, with, with there being no price, you were actually doing that at a loss. So it's, it's the exact opposite of what the Howey, Howey test looks for. You had people mining Bitcoin at a loss at the beginning. And that stands in direct contrast to 
all these other cryptocurrencies that come out with a promise of gains. You know, why do people buy these cryptocurrencies for the most part? Because they want gains, they want moon, they want they want all that stuff. And that just wasn't the the atmosphere um, at the beginning of the Bitcoin, Bitcoin story. Now, obviously, it certainly became that atmosphere later on. Um, but when you're looking towards the launch of the currency and the launch of, of the project and the protocol, that's, a, that's a, a big distinguishing factor. So that's uh, two things. The other thing is, specific, particularly you know, in the last decade, there's no leadership team in Bitcoin. Um, and every time you think there's a leader, uh, they are cast down by, by the community, it seems. Um, but with, that, with the exception, like, I will concede that Satoshi Nakamoto was certainly the founder. Um, but I would not call him the leader in any respect because it was, you know, you know, his, I, or his um, effect over the protocol was really only to the extent that his computers had the power to, um, to, to generate, you know, in terms of adding new blocks to the blockchain, and that his ideas had the power to persuade. But he was never, you know, the, the Vitalik Buterin or the, you know, the, uh, the, um, I don't want to say Joe Lubin, but you know the, the people who identify as the leaders of the of the of the protocol. You know Satoshi really didn't have that power, and to the extent that he did, if you want to say that he did, sure, that has been gone for well over a decade, and that's pretty remarkable. And I don't think there's anything out there that can replicate that. So when you have no leadership team, um, there is no common enterprise in which to direct the protocol. And as we've seen, you, you know, people leaders have tried to emerge over the course of Bitcoin's history. Um, whether it's whether it's uh, Roger Ver or uh, Mike Hearn or Craig Wright, even <laughs> lest I say his name and breathe life back into it, um, you know, those people have been cast aside by the community, and that's a, a remarkable aspect of the Bitcoin story. Um, and it just shows again that there is no leader here; that it's a kind of a a living organism of users that come in and come out. Uh, at will, as needed, uh, and it's it's um, it's incredible, and it and it really, from a securities perspective, it really diminishes any potential liability for Bitcoin because there is no common enterprise, right? So now, you think about the, the again. Let's go back to those those tests of the Howey test, uh, or excuse me, those prongs of the Howey test. It constitutes an investment of money. Sure, some people put in some money um, at some point, but certainly not early on. In fact, they were just um, throwing in computer power. Uh, Expectation of profit from the investment again early on can't really say that there was any expectation. Um, the investment money comes in a common enterprise. Um, the enterprise changes all the time. Bitcoin's enterprise is is, is not an, even you couldn't even call it an enterprise. So there is no common enterprise. People leaders come and go. Um, they're cast down. The the, the um, to the extent that they maintain any sort of persuasiveness, they have to usually force to hard fork off and start their own thing, which goes down its own securities path. Um, so it's, uh, again, it's really well insulated. And, um, I think the last thing that's really very important is the genuine decentralization of the Bitcoin network. Um, I don't know about you, but I run a Bitcoin node, you know, just using, uh, Umbrel software, uh, from a Raspberry Pi I got on Amazon. You know, it's, it's, it's trivial power to use. It's trivial time to understand and learn how to do, but, you know, that makes me a, you know, an entity that, that has some degree of control over the network, um, but you know I can turn that off whenever I want. I can turn it on whenever I want. I can make I can open up a Lightning channel whenever I want. Close it down whenever I want. It's entirely voluntary, um, and you know there's tens of thousands of people, probably more, all over the world that do this. And again, this just shows there's no real common enterprise, um, and there's no control over the network or the protocol or Bitcoin itself. Um, and it's 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 another just another insulating factor. So that genuine decentralization makes it really really difficult um, <clears throat> to for uh, even even an overzealous regulator in the SEC who just wants to come down on Bitcoin. Like who are you going to identify as the leader of Bitcoin? Who are you going to come down with? On what group are you going to come down on to you know s serve your subpoenas and say come come meet us in Congress and talk about what all what you're doing in Bitcoin and and and. Um, to the extent that they don't like it, they can say, well, you know, you need to change it. And, you know, you're, you're kind of helpless to change it by yourself. Yeah, definitely. I think like in comparison to, to alter other cryptos, 
you know, like Bitcoin doesn't have like a native staking yield, right? Like the only way to accumulate more Bitcoin or new Bitcoin is from proof of work, like purchasing mm -hmm. actual hardware that actually just takes in energy, does a bunch of hashes and then gets Bitcoin. Like there's no native yield that the developers or the founders like put in to like try to encourage you to, to buy into this coin and then you'll actually earn yield or like, quote unquote like dividends future mm -hmm. like board looking you it's just the only way to get more bitcoin is to put in work basically yep and and again that goes that goes to the the fair launch the fair distribution the ultimate fairness of the system uh, is all buttressed by by that and it's uh and that, just another thing that 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 sets it apart from others and then the another thing is is not even just the idea of generating yield but like fees burning i know like like ethereum with proof of stake, the, the idea is, you know, the ultrasound money idea where, hey, if we burn enough fees, the supply, or we have enough fees we, that we burn, the supply can actually go down. Kind of like any, you know, it's a, it's, it, it kind of makes sense on, on paper. Like if you look at shares outstanding for Apple over the last, I don't know, six plus years, shares outstanding are, are, are going straight down. Apple is, you know, ultra deflationary or ultrasound <laughs> money, I guess, if you want to call it that. But, you know, that's kind of like, yeah, Apple is clearly, you know, an equity and they're trying to get a return for their investors. So it's almost like is ETH like this native, you know, token that's trying to that there's a group, the Ethereum Foundation, that's trying to, you know, generate yield or generate a return for their investors. I mean, it's an interesting idea. It is. And it, and and I, I do think <laughs> I love the ultrasound money meme. Um but you know, like we should dispel the fact that a merely deflation, a temporary deflationary pop monetary policy does not make you ultrasound money. And that ultrasound money is not really a thing. You either have sound money or you don't. Um, but what you know, the, the sound money thesis comes from the predictability of the supply issuance, which is what Bitcoin has and what everyone's jealous of that they can never recreate, because we have now this just you know decades plus long history of supply cut, supply issuance cut, supply issuance cut with all the halvings. And so if, if Ethereum or any other token, you know, they get together with a social consensus mechanism and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to cut the supply through burn, token burns, and it's going to be deflationary, that is completely the same as monetary policy as it exists today in the fiat world. There's no distinction there. So, you know, when the Fed raises interest rates, that's, that's a deflationary um, ultrasound money move, right? But I don't think anyone would call the Fed's dollar or any other central bank's currency ultrasound because they periodically throw in some deflationary bug every now and then. Yeah, exactly. Like I think the M2 like growth percentage year over year right now is is technically like negative or at least like the last 6 months or so. So technically the dollar is ultrasound money, right? Yes, now, by the Ethereum standard, yes. Yeah. <laughs> then again, I guess if you asked me a year ago, or you told me a year ago that you should switch to uh, dollars uh, or you should hold more dollars because it's about to be ultrasound. I probably should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's really tough. you got to time it just right. But if you can do that and you've got the inside track with the insiders, then uh, then by all means, please go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Just make well, sure you get I mean, out of there in time. <laughs> yeah, cool. I think that was, you know, good covering of, of Bitcoin, why it's, I guess, you know, not a security. I'm curious to know, like, as in your law practice, you said you like, you do a, you know, a few things in the Bitcoin and crypto space. Like, what do you see most often? What are people coming to you and asking you for help on? Uh, typically it's, uh, it's just, you know, this token launch, let's, let's get it going. Like, let's start it. I've got an idea. I've got a token I want to launch. Like, let's get it going. Um, and so you kind of have to talk about there's, 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 so many different aspects of doing that because you're, you know, you, you run into potential FinCEN regulations, you run into securities regulations, um, you run into Bank Secrecy Act problems and things like that. Because all, all of these, all these launches are, 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 they they butt up against all these different, um, you know, alphabet soup agencies in the United States. And, and obviously, I focus United States only. Um, so there's there's all these other ones in Europe and and in other other jurisdictions that I, I don't even really pay attention to because I'm only thinking about the United States. Um, but that's, that, that's typically what it is. So we have these lawyers who come in that are, you know, banking lawyers, we have securities lawyers and, you know, I, I speak with them and, and just, again, try to, um, 
get them to understand how how this works from a from a from a tech perspective. Not being, I'm, I wouldn't call myself super technically inclined or anything like that, but I understand how it works, and and it's sufficient to sort of give them the ability to run their legal analysis in their discrete area of the law. Um, and so that's really what's been the most part of it. Ideally, what we would have is Bitcoin companies. Um, the, you know, the original structure of, of the practice was to have Bitcoin companies coming to us for, for nece not necessarily Bitcoin related work, but it would be more like, you know, traditional law work, like uh, employment law contracts and, and corporate structuring and things like that. And to the extent they ever get litigation issues, for whatever reason it may be, um, you know, we can help them out with there, as I was talking about earlier about educating the judge. But again, thankfully, that doesn't happen that often. Um, I think exchanges experience probably the most litigation exposure. Um, but I haven't worked personally with any exchanges or anything like that yet, but, um, I do think that they get a good amount of exposure and we've had clients in the firm, um, that have dealt with that, but that's, you know, that's, that's probably primarily what I, I would say I do is, you know, dealing with these token launches and trying to advise the lawyers who are advising them. Yeah, that's very interesting. Are there any like regulations or like laws that you think? that either currently apply to Bitcoin and crypto or could apply to Bitcoin and crypto that you may think that need to be added or edited or removed in the U.S.? Um, let me see. So I think, you know, with with Bitcoin, I think less is more. Um, I think trying to get out of the way is really the the best option. Um, it's, it's a very, uh, I would say mature protocol. It's very deliberative in its actions. And one of the largest critiques against it is that it's too slow to change. And, you know, crypto is this move fast and break things, um, mindset, which, you know, for whatever, better or for worse, that's, that's what it is. A lot of people like that. I think it's, I think it has its place. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bitcoin, I, I think that the regulators just need to just stay out of the way as best they can. Um, I, I don't, I mean, there's, there's issues with, with, um, miners, Bitcoin miners. And I think there's this, there's this, uh, impression that Bitcoin miners approve transactions, which I don't think, um, is really how it works in practice, but there's an impression that they do. And then from that perspective, you might get sort of like that OFAC, uh, element where it's financial crimes and terrorism and things like that. So we want to have these blacklisted addresses. And I think that's just the worst possible thing for what purports to be neutral money. And it's so important that, that we get to a point where Bitcoin is unencumbered neutral, unencumbered by you know jurisdictions, uh, unencumbered neutral money, because it already is neutral, right? Like that's, that's the way it was designed. We need to ensure that it never gets co-opted by different jurisdictions because as soon as something happens where something terrible happens, where the person who did the terrible thing, you know, was a somewhat, you know, they, maybe they had a Bitcoin wallet or something and use it to buy a, a truck that took them to the place where they did something terrible. You're going to get people saying, well, we have to stop this. We have to save, uh, you know, our children, save the babies, blah, blah, blah. No offense. Um, but that's what that's what always happens in these circumstances. And we need to really look back, look at those potential um, eventualities with a very sober, rational lens. Because if we allow our emotions as a, as a culture, as a country, as a political unit um, to get the best of us, we're going to really destroy one of Bitcoin's greatest value props. So if miners start saying, oh, I'm only doing OFAC compliant blocks, or I'm only doing this or, or that, or I'm blocking this address, it really is a slippery slope. And um, as you've seen, like whether you know whether you agree with the Canadian trucker protests or not, I'm sure most Bitcoiners do. Uh, but even, but if you're someone who's maybe less inclined to adopt Bitcoin and you like the idea of being able to silence uh, dissent by freezing their accounts, um, that's really problematic because you know protest is one of those fundamental First Amendment things. True, it was in Canada, but um, it's one of those fundamental things that we think of Western democracy, liberal enlightenment thought, and. If the country that you are a part of is just free to freeze your money, it's never, it's not really your money at that point. It's the state's money that they allow you permission to access towards or to use. Um, and that is the thing that Bitcoin is trying to, or one of the things that Bitcoin is trying to uh, get away from. And we have to be very careful to guard that value proposition um, 
because if we lose it, it's a huge loss to Bitcoin. It's a huge loss to humanity and liberty and, and the ideas of, you know, true liberal values, you know, like a, a classical liberal values. Um, and I don't want to, you know, get that confused with the political party and everything. But um, yeah, so it's, so to answer your question, you know, what can we do from a, you know, remove from a legal perspective is maintain a, 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 a strong wall of separation between the state and the neutrality of money. If we can do that, um, we're really on the right track. Nice. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I mean, we saw Marathon, like one of the largest publicly traded miners in the world. They announced it, this was like sometime last year, that they were basically going to follow like the OFAC guidelines of like they can't accept Bitcoin from address or they weren't going to mine certain certain blocks um, mm-hmm. from certain addresses that contain UTXOs from those addresses. And then the community definitely was like, hey, don't do that. It's a slippery, slippery slope. It's not good for Bitcoin. It's not good for the U.S. It's not good for the world. And thankfully, they stopped that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we've kind of already had like our first battle with, you know, censoring transactions on Bitcoin and arguably, you know, Bitcoin and the network and the users won. Yep. Yeah. And we just have to remain vigilant as best we can and and just expect, you know, a lot of the, the quote FUD and everything coming from the the incumbent system, whether it's media, government or whatever. Um, if you have a when you have a tragedy, things get a lot more. We got to do something. We got to do something. Um, and that's where the that's where the danger really is. We were able to kind of calmly rationalize with the marathon situation. Hey, you know, this isn't good. Uh, you know, this is part of you know, we we need a neutral layer, and that's great, and that's a great first test. But the tests will get harder over time, just because of you know statistics and the fact that tragedies occur you know every so often. And eventually, one of those tragedies is going to be linked to Bitcoin, and that's going to be the real challenge. And we really have to be prepared for something like that, both from a lobbying perspective and just from a social cultural perspective, because it's not just going to be we got to lobby the politicians. We're going to have to convince the public as well of the merits of neutral money. And they're probably not going to want to hear that right away. Uh, and it's just, again, it's, it's a challenge. It's one of the biggest challenges, I think, facing Bitcoin. Because if we lose that neutrality, we've got a real problem. Happily, the, the protocol always can be forked, right? So you can always make your bets that neutral money wins out in the end of the day. And you can hang on to your neutral money fork and have your, you'll have your OFAC-compliant fork over there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's unideal. Right. So we want to address those head on and we want to be able to do that. So preparing now, getting our sort of lobbying foot underneath us and our cultural foot underneath us as well is really, I think, something we need to do over the next five or 10 years. Yeah, definitely. I think like Andreas Andonopoulos has that like one good quote where like or that is like a two minute video that's on YouTube that he spoke about at a conference. He was like, all right, say like, you know, large governments to get together and do create this like OFAC compliant chain where certain transactions that are not allowed to get broadcasted well the rest of the chain is going to be like, hey like let's mine real bitcoin we're not going to do mm-hmm. that and who's going to join the nsa blockchain and everyone yeah. just kind of laughs <laughs> yeah i mean it's true it, it, it um that's an amazing feature of bitcoin and just well and i know we're saying like let's not give blockchain too much credit but that's that's one of the features of that is is that you can fork and you can have you know the nice thing is you get the equal distribution too so you can even hedge your bets. You say, oh, I'll keep my OFAC Bitcoin, but I'm also going to keep my non-OFAC Bitcoin. You can kind of do what you want. Um, but uh, it's it's still dangerous, though, because the forked Bitcoin can really be pummeled by the cultural uh, the cultural aspect of everything. And, you know, you might have to sacrifice a lot of value, which I think most of us would be willing to do. Um, but it's just rough. So if we can if we can confront that without having to do the fork, then that's that's all the better as far as I'm concerned. It's, I know Bitcoiners like to say, you know, kind of F you, you know, we do what we want. And that's true to a degree. But there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, playing a little preemptive uh, defense and just getting out in front of this kind of stuff because we know it's coming. And um, if we can get into the lobbying circles and get into the, the, the uh, cultural circles and just convince them about the neutrality of money, that's the best, that's the best case scenario. But you're right. And Andreas is obviously right. Forks will work just fine too. Yeah, um, I, I guess you saw this. There was like a White House report maybe like a month ago that was kind of like analyzing the effects of of proof of work, and there were like you know some 
at some points in the report, they were bashing it. And then at some points in the report, they were like highlighting the benefits of proof of work, mm-hmm. very clear benefits for the environment, for, for people, for communities, for jobs, for taxes. Um, so, but there was like some, some debate in it. Um, do you think that proof of work, if, if it got bad on a f- federal level where they, you know, maybe they weren't going to think about banning it, but they were like really pressuring and, and creating like very unnecessary or, or aggressive regulations. Do you think it's possible that, Proof of work and maybe other, you know, Bitcoin related topics will become more of like a state's rights issue. Whereas like, you know, currently there's a ton of miners in Kentucky with Blockware has, you know, mines there. Uh, Texas, there's Riot Blockchain's massive facility and a bunch mm-hmm. of other miners in Texas. Do you think if, you know, the federal government comes down and tries to crack down on Bitcoin mining, will certain states that have a large pre- presence in the industry, will they like fight back? Yeah, I think, I mean... I think that's one of the beauties of the way our country is, is set up is that there is the capacity for that. And with Bitcoin in particular and proof of work, um, generally, you know, it, it's primed for what, what you, you would refer to as jurisdictional arbitrage, you know, where you go, where you jurisdiction shop. Um, because these things, I mean, I was, just, I just saw the riot announcement today and I was like, that is a massive, massive warehouse. Um, that might be difficult to kind of just up and, and, and move on a whim, but a lot of these minor mines or, or miners, excuse me, um, uh, and I just was listening to Pierre Richard and he doesn't like the minor term. And I kind of agree with him too on that, but neither here, it, it, it's already kind of ingrained in my brain. So I'm going to stick with it. But, but um, uh, you know, a lot of these are, are capable of being uh, picked up and moved and relatively quickly. So I think you'll absolutely see jurisdictional arbitrage and states com- competing for uh, either, you know, I guess, political political clout from among their constituents will say, oh, we want the miners out. And then also the the political clout and monetary value of bringing miners in. Um, so you're going to have that debate. Uh, I don't really see how federally or states-wise we ban proof of work itself. Uh, it, if you've had a chance to read, there's a lawyer, um, I think he's now the uh, counsel, uh, one of the lead counsel for, uh, or general counsel for um, crypto.com, in the north in North America, his name is Justin Wales. He used to be just at a law firm, kind of like me, um, and he wrote a really good law review article on how Bitcoin proof of work is essentially, or Bitcoin is speech, and proof of work is part of that speech. Uh, and so you would run into First Amendment problems with banning the act of proof of work, uh, where you, if I'm a jurisdictional, if I'm a government and I'm trying to minimize proof of work, I, I think they'll probably have more success in banning particular uses of energy to do proof of work. I think you might have less um, First Amendment issues if you do it that way. But I don't really see like a proof of work ban really ever taking off in the United States um, absent an extreme change in the uh, Supreme Court um, or, you know, a lot of precedent would have to be overturned, I think. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree there. Like we've seen the state of New York try to ban Bitcoin mining from like the exact point that you're you're bringing up where it's like hey like you can mine bitcoin but you can only do it from certain renewables but i don't even think that ended up getting passed or if it did it's it's like multiple years out before it becomes reality um but yeah i, I think like banning proof of work in the united states would be like a very far out thing and it, it would be a big stretch i think especially as bitcoin continues to grow and you know it gets more entrenched into the existing energy like energy grids and just mm-hmm. financial system yeah and then there's there's kids being born right now will be vote or you know the kids who were five years old are now 18 years old when bitcoin was founded right so they're voters now and they were five when bitcoin was founded you're gonna, you, as time goes on you're gonna have people alive who don't know a world without bitcoin and they, they're not i don't think they're going to be interested in banning it it's not going to be some crazy investment to them it'll just be something that's been there the same way um, you know, dollars were to us. We're like, well, you know, when you're you know 20 years old, 15 years old, you, most people don't question the dollar. Some do, <laughs> um, but most people don't. So like, it's always been there and it's great. And you know, now we're experiencing this moderately inflationary period, and people are starting to question, which I think is great. Um, but there's some power in um, the the history of of uh, of, the, of a monetary medium. So when Bitcoin is just around for 20 or 30 years. People are just gonna accept it as something that's useful, valuable, and is gonna be there. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think 
like Blockware Intelligence does like a lot of reports on Bitcoin user adoption. And like you can use Glassnode data to like visually see that, hey, the amount of entities that are holding their own private keys on the Bitcoin blockchain is basically only going up. There's only going to be more and more people using this technology. And to me, it's like if I'm using Bitcoin and I'm and by using, I mean, just holding Bitcoin, I'm using the savings technology. It's pretty valuable to me, right? Like that becomes one of the most important voting issues for me when politicians mm -hmm. are, are running for election. Whereas if you're just, you know, a regular person that doesn't own any Bitcoin, maybe you're, you think proof of work is bad, but still might not necessarily or likely won't be like your number one issue of like, hey, like I'm, we need to ban proof of work at all costs because I think it's like destroying the world. Whereas mm -hmm. I don't, I, I think, I definitely think there's probably that subset of people, but I think they're very small, like that, that really are willing to like put everything they have behind it. Whereas, you know, if someone that has a large portion of their portfolio, in Bitcoin, they're going to be very, you know, aggressive to like, hey, like, you're not banning proof of work. Like, this is my money. This is my property. We're going to stop you right there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and you know, I mean, you might get the single issue voter who's like, uh, climate change is the only thing I care about. And if you don't do it, if you're not on my side on that, then I'm not voting for you. Um, but th this also goes back to the, the educating the public and educating legislators and judges and things like that is that Bitcoin really is not a net negative on on climate by any measurement right i mean co2 you know if you want to, if that's your if that's your boogeyman even though it is very you know it's a natural i hate that people are trying to classify it as a pollutant but um you know it's really not a net negative on that it's 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 fantastic for monetizing and potentially bringing into profit otherwise unprofitable renewable energy um uh grids so if you know you're solar you know, and you have no, and you have no demand. It's a, it's, it's a no-brainer to have a Bitcoin miner out there ready to suck up that no-demand solar period. You're not going to store it; it's going to dissipate. Um, what, that's an absolute no-brainer. So if we can, yeah, whether or not you agree with the climate change angle on promoting Bitcoin by saying, "Hey, we can help climate change," you, sometimes people don't want to accept that argument. I get that. Like, it's maybe it's not worth um, entertaining, but. To the extent that you feel that you know we can assuage some of their fears, it, 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 unless they're just absolutely unwilling to listen to, you know, reason, then we, we, you you can have some converts, I think, on, on that, and I think that's good. And again, it makes your battle down the road uh, a little bit easier. And I don't think if we're trying to separate money from state uh, in a way that hasn't been accomplished in a long, you know, a long time. I mean, the money has always been gravitating towards state throughout human history, and now we're trying to take that and change that that path and get it away from state. Um, and that's an incredibly difficult task. So if there's a way that we can make that easier, then we should pursue it, I think. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think it's, you know, such an interesting topic to talk about. Um, I'll ask you one more question and then we'll just go ahead and, and wrap this up. So what do you think, like, and you can take this however you want from a legal perspective or just from a Bitcoin focused perspective, whatever you want. What do you think the future looks like in 30 years and, and what role does Bitcoin play? Uh, so I, th I'll take it from the Bitcoin perspective. Uh, um, cause I am like, uh, I'm, you know, as I said, I'm a hundred percent convinced that this thing is the real deal and it's our best shot at, um, you know, getting away from a lot of the incentive mechanisms that have brought us to this point where we have so little faith in our traditional institutions that require faith to operate. So whether it's media I mean, even now we have um, healthcare. Healthcare has come in the, last, in the last three years. The healthcare apparatus has really come into question. Um, whether it's government between the you know Congress and the legislatures or judges and everything, every, everything that requires trust or that, that used to have trust is really ha has been deteriorated over time. And I think that that's a result of the perverse incentive mechanisms of fiat money, where you're able to essentially take from those around you without asking them through inflation. And then you can, on the other hand, take that that you've just stolen from them, subsidize things that they didn't vote for or ask for. Uh, and that's, you know, that's mostly what's going on. So if we can pull back to uh, a situation where Bitcoin is, you know, I don't know, that doesn't even have to be ubiquitous, just well accepted and, and common, um, that will disincentivize that behavior because they'll, the monetary system will be linked at least in some degree to something real in the same way that it was under gold, but we've seen gold fail for obvious reasons. Like it's, you know, it's, 
centralizing. It has naturally centralizing features. And I think everything does to a degree, but gold failed and it's not going to unfail. You're not going to get a situation where gold becomes easier to transport in a digital economy of the next 30 years, 20, 30 years. It's not going to become less cumbersome to use gold in your life or less centralized or less reliant on other intermediaries to, to do the changing of hands. So um, Bitcoin's really the best shot. It's native. It's digitally native. It's it's a strong, sound money. Um, and I'd love to see it get a, a, a strong amount of adoption and also replace some of those those uh, those trust mechanisms that we used to have. You have countries that mutually don't trust each other. The one thing you need is an economic ledger that is not that doesn't require trust. And I think that's the void that Bitcoin's going to hold. I think you'll see your large um, inter like national transactions settled on chain L1 Bitcoin uh, periodically. You'll have a lot. Uh, you'll have a, a greater adoption, whether it's L2, L3 adoption, whether it's Lightning or something else. Although Lightning's doing really well right now, um, and that will be you know your you know your big trust. Um, you know the ability to get trust back into the ecosystem and in, in, in what it has been completely degrading over the last 50 or 60 years. So that's my hope. That's that's hyper Bitcoinization for me. It's not using Bitcoin for necessarily every transaction. I think you'll still have currencies here and there, um, but it's getting that for those those large transactions that can take place between mutually distrusting parties on a trustworthy ledger that you don't that you don't need to independently verify yourself or that you do independently verify yourself. Nice. Yeah, I like it. I think this is a great conversation. I think the audience will love it because um, you offer like a unique you know, perspective from a, a certain practice, like a legal practice that you know a lot of people on Bitcoin Twitter or in the crypto world may not be too familiar with. So I think this is great. Do you have anything you want to plug, like your Twitter, your, your law practice, or a website or anything? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely always take the opportunity to plug. Um, now my Twitter is just Brian Jackato, B-R-Y-A-N-J-A-C-O-U-T-O-T. Um, it's my name up there, but, um, yeah, if y'all, uh, are a Bitcoin focused company and you guys need legal work, whether it's structuring your company, whether it's litigation, really, I mean, we do, we run the whole gambit. So, um, if you need any help, you know, just give me a shout and uh, I'm happy to help and, uh, I'm certainly down with the cause. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.